Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the question is to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. And the answer could result in an outbreak. Children have to suffer rusted to finally learn about this. We walk you through the rise of the anti-vax movement. Facts don't sway people in this case. Efforts to combat hoaxes and what parents can do to make the right choice. Then our newsmaker is the nation's oldest historically black college. It's been cash-strapped for years, but that could be over. They're planned to be in the black by June 30th. All of this and more... We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint podcast. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is vaccinations. The question of whether parents should be forced to vaccinate their children has been front and center. After measles outbreaks in multiple states, now much of the problem stems from misinformation and conspiracy theories spread on social media. The so-called anti-vax movement links vaccines to autism, a myth that has been repeatedly debunked. An Ohio high school senior named Ethan Lindenberg testified before the U.S. Senate on Tuesday regarding why he defied his mother's wishes and got vaccinated. Although my mother returned to illegitimate sources and I quickly saw that the evidence and claims for myself were not accurate. Claims his mother got the misinformation from Facebook. Now that company and others like YouTube and Pinterest, they've all vowed to act to stop the conspiracy. So should vaccines be mandatory with limited exceptions or should parents have a choice? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Paul Offit. He's a pediatrician specializing in infectious diseases. He's director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We also have Diddy Mae Jankalkis. She is the Gloucester County Public Health. And finally, on the phone, we have Dr. Tracy Castles, Director of Evolutionary Parenting. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Offit, can you explain in a nutshell what vaccines have done for infectious disease over the years? So one of the biggest killers in history was smallpox. It killed over 500 million people. It's been eliminated from the face of the earth. Uh, My parents were children in the 20s and 30s. They saw diphtheria as a routine killer of teenagers, and polio as a common crippler of young people. I was a child of, of the, the 50s and 60s. I had measles. I had mumps. I had German measles. I had, had chicken pox. I had those diseases. Now, here you had measles killed 500 children a year. Um, rubella, German measles, would cause yeah. thousands of, of babies to have severe congenital birth defects. So, um, you know, mumps was, was a, a very common cause of deafness. All of that has been eliminated. I think that um, vaccines have saved our lives. And because of vaccines, largely we live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago. But recently, you had an issue in Gloucester County. We had um, an outbreak of hepatitis A. It's still ongoing. Uh, we are seeing it in our homeless population and our population who use uh, street drugs. To people who don't know what hepatitis A is, explain it. Hepatitis A is a virus uh, infection of the liver. This type of hepatitis happens to be uh, transmitted person to person when they ingest a small undetectable amount of the virus on an object or food that they eat. Hepatitis A is vaccine preventable. 
And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get out there to prevent future infections. So, um, Dr. Castles, I want to jump over to you now. You you believe in vaccinations, but you also believe that parents should have a choice when dealing with this issue. I do. I want to be clear here. My idea of choice is not unfettered choice, though. We tend to think that if we give people a choice, they should be able to choose it without consequence and without our intervention with it. And that's not what I believe. I do believe that at the end of the day, I don't believe in mandatory vaccination, but I also don't think we've gone nearly far enough to reduce the troubles we're facing now in terms of the measles outbreak and whatnot, and that we need to be doing far more before we go towards mandatory vaccination. And we'll talk about solutions in just a moment. Dr. Offit, I want you to kind of talk about how we got to a place where we are seeing these outbreaks. Before the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963, we had about three to four million cases of measles every year, 48,000 hospitalizations to 500 deaths. With the advent of the the measles vaccine, it was routinely recommended in 67 as a one-dose vaccine. The second dose was recommended in 1991. We eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000. That's how good that vaccine was. The problem is, I think not only did we eliminate the disease... I think we eliminated the memory of disease. So people don't remember just how sick that could make you or how dead occasionally that could make you. And so there were pockets in this country, like most recently Clark County in Washington State, where as many as 22% of children weren't vaccinated. That was then fertile ground for measles to that's come back. That's one in five plus, yeah. yeah that's right. And, and you know, it, it is the most contagious of the vaccine-preventable diseases. It's invariably the first disease to come back. And so you're seeing outbreaks now in Washington, Illinois, New mm. York, New Jersey, Oregon, Washington State. I mean, it's, that's what happened happens when a critical number of children aren't vaccinated. And what's that? You said critical number. And this is one in five at this point. How did we get to a place where so many parents are opting out? They weren't scared of the disease. I think vaccines are a victim of their own, own success. I think that people are compelled by fear more than reason and they don't fear the disease. And so they think that's OK. I cannot get the vaccine. When Jenny McCarthy goes on television and says, you know, I'll take the measles every time. It tells you not only does she not know how sick measles can make you, we've eliminated the memory of measles. Yeah. And, and I think in many ways that, that's good because it's you shouldn't have to remember such a terrible disease. On the other hand, people get very cavalier about this and think, you know, sure, measles, no big deal. And so let's talk about the realities of an outbreak a little bit. And we're not talking about measles here, but it seems like hep A is fairly transmittable. You can infect each other. And, and, and what was the reality of that outbreak that Gloucester County had to deal with? Our role as public health is to try, try to prevent the spread of the illness, similar to like a police detective in a police department trying to uh, figure out a crime and stop crime. In public health, we are like a detective of disease and we try to figure out, you know, what's causing the disease and we try to stop it as quickly as we possibly can. So you had people living in the homeless populations who were getting sick. Yes. That and, is, and what did the sickness look like? With hepatitis A, they um, people can be, it can be a very uh, severe illness. People um, have abdominal pain, vomiting. Um, they can have diarrhea, dark colored urine, jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin and the eye, the whites of the eyes. And they can, and this illness can last, uh, I mean, relatively, it can last, two, you know, anywhere from two to four weeks to two months and even sometimes up to six months. Yeah. And the and reason why I'm asking you for these details is because majority right. of people, if you said, what is hep A? They don't know. And was there a fear that it was going to spread to the just outside of the homeless population? Well, we always worry about that, and that's why we try to put control measures in place to keep it um, under control. Dr. Castles, when you hear about these outbreaks, is this part of what you said, that there should not be choice without consequences? I think with choice, there is 
strong responsibility to come with that. So, for example, in Australia, they've removed payment from families that have chosen not to vaccinate. And I think that's absolutely 100% legitimate. A family has to face certain consequences. And as Paul pointed out, because vaccines have been victim of their own success, some of those consequences may need to be different. They may need to hit people where they actually start to think about it, such as in a monetary sense or not being able to access public daycares. And these are all legitimate consequences to making a choice to opt out of a public health prerogative, I would say. But I still would maintain that families should have that choice along with, as I have a lot of other things that I think need to be worked on too in order to increase vaccination rates. Yeah. Are there reasons, though, uh, doctor, that are legitimate for opting out of vaccinations? Sure. If your immune system is compromised, for example, if you're on chemo, cancer chemotherapy or if you're, you're on immune suppressive agent for chronic diseases or rheumatologic diseases, obviously you can't get a live attenuated viral vaccine. I mean, if you're allergic to a specific component in a vaccine, the most common being gelatin, which is used as a stabilizer. Um, it used to be egg proteins, but that's not an issue anymore. But if you're allergic to gelatin, obviously you shouldn't have to get vaccines where gelatin is used as a uh, as a stabilizer. But but that's pretty much it. I mean, if, if you if you look at at the reasons that people often choose not to, to get vaccines, it's not ba- it's based on ill founded fears. Like I don't want to get a vaccine because I'm afraid vaccines cause autism or diabetes or multiple sclerosis or attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity. Vaccines don't cause those things. So if that's the reason that you're you're choosing, you're you're making a bad choice that that puts your child at unnecessary risk. Yeah, and were there reasons why people hadn't had these types of ordinary vaccinations in New Jersey? Well, hepatitis A vaccine has just been recommended for children starting at age one since 1999. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it's just been in effect since 1999. But uh, with the cases that we're seeing, we are seeing adults age 22 and over. So we can see that actually the vaccination is helping with the age group that is now receiving it. Tracy, why do you think this issue is so controversial, this issue of whether parents should choose to vaccinate or not? I think every family on either side is scared. Fear is the issue driving the entire discussion, and no one is rational when fear is involved. And so whether you're of the side, like we chose to vaccinate our kids, because I have still a healthy fear of the diseases that they prevent. I also understand that because of the victim of the success, some people are more afraid of adverse reactions or misguided fears about autism or breast cancer or, I mean, a slew of things. It's not just one thing. There's a lot of fears that people have surrounding it. And when we look at, you know, at least in Canada here, something like 60% of families report being afraid of something to do with vaccines. Now, most of them still vaccinate, but fear tops the list. And whenever we're afraid, we end up polarizing ourselves and going to both sides without trying to look at it, I think, from a way that brings people together. Where did all this misinformation come from? And how did it spread? Unfounded, real-founded fears about vaccines have been around since the first vaccine. I mean, the, the smallpox vaccine was invented in 1796. There's a, a, a picture actually done by James Gilray in 1804 where you see sort of this disinterested Edward Jenner, who was the inventor of the smallpox vaccine, standing among a group of people, all of whom were developing these cow-like characteristics, you know, because it's cowpox, right? So they're getting snouts and tails. They're having like little cows come out of their butts. I mean, the notion that if you get this cowpox virus that you could then turn into a cow was born with 
within years of the smallpox vaccine. And I would argue that the biological basis of a lot of today's concerns are about as logical as that. I mean, the notion that vaccines cause autism doesn't make a bit of biological sense any more than some of these other fears. But the bottom line is today, where does it come from? Primarily it comes from the internet and social media. I think that's where people get their information and that's where they can get great information or they can get awful information. And they're asked to sort it out and sometimes they don't sort it out well. And why do you think people believe it so much? I mean, to the point where they're, they're taking these ideas that they get from YouTube or Facebook and literally like, you know, making decisions about their kids. No, that's a great question. I think the answer is because they're looking for a reason not to vaccinate. I mean, we ask a lot of parents in this country. We ask them to give vaccines to prevent 14 different diseases in the first few years of life, which can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases most people don't see using biological fluids most people don't understand. They're looking for a reason not to get vaccinated. I mean, they're thinking polio, really? I, don't, I need the polio vaccine? I need the diphtheria vaccine? Why? And so if you're looking for a reason not to get yeah. a vaccine, the Internet's an easy place to find them. Yeah. Has the county had to fight people to get these this new um, vaccine for Hep A and other vaccines? We've had a really good response with offering the vaccine. People are interested in protecting themselves. So, you know, you'll always have somebody who is on the other side of the coin. But for the most part, you know, we're out, we're doing the education and people, you know, realize the, the um, se- severity of the illness and they want to protect themselves. Any advice to, to parents, Tracy, as on how they sift through this stuff? Well, I think there's the first thing is always go to a credible source that if you're looking at vaccine information, I mean, CHOP is one that I recommend. CDC, you can look at the World Health Organization. These are global organizations well, or local and case, but larger organizations that really have gathered the type of information that parents should be listening to. But I also think, I mean, you can get that information and I don't think it really affects a lot of people's minds. Facts don't sway people in this case as we went back to the issue of fear. And I think that's where something, what I think we really need is more kind of peer-to-peer programs. Like there's been the Boost program in Oregon that's been very successful at addressing people who have this hesitancy, who, like Paul said, might be looking for a reason out. And that one-on-one discussion with typically they have a pediatrician and other parents in there to talk about this and have a a reasoned discussion that doesn't always happen online to address this. And I think we need a lot more of those programs in place for people to be able to discuss their fears and have them, you know, allayed by someone who actually has answers and can present them in a way that is non-threatening. We know the testimony this week by an Ohio teenager named Ethan Lindenberger. He defied his mother's wishes and went and got a vaccination. Now, Mm -hmm. he says that his peers being in school, they looked at him as a health threat and he didn't even blame his mother. He said his mother was, you know, believing a lot of, you know, misinformation. I mean, your your thoughts on this, Paul? No, I, I thought the interesting thing about his story, and he, he's amazing, actually. Yeah. He's 18 going on to 35. You should run for office. This, he's incredibly well-spoken. Is basically what he's saying is this should, should have been my choice. And I think what was odd was that the anti-vaccine people really came down hard on him. And, and, and all he was saying basically is what they're saying, which is this should be my choice. And you know what? Something I'm going to surprise Tracy by agreeing with her uh, on her, on her 
but in some ways in her central premise, I think I agree with you, Tracy. I think vaccines shouldn't have to be mandated. I mean, if you look at, at societies like Scandinavian countries like Finland and Norway, vaccines aren't mandated there. And yet they have extremely high immunization rates because it's an informed public that basically believes the public health community and believes the academic and, and medical community. And so they therefore are convinced by good information and get vaccines. We shouldn't need to mandate vaccines in this country because people should be well-informed and therefore they will make good choices, which will benefit their children as well as society. Unfortunately, there's so much bad information out there that causes people to make bad choices that puts both their children as well as those with whom they come in contact at risk that we really do need to mandate vaccines. It's unfortunate. And I acknowledge when I was thinking about even coming on here, you know, I live in Canada and we have a slight outbreak in Vancouver, but we also have a very different system in terms of public trust. And I do see how in the States there is a larger issue at hand in terms of public trust in institutions, public trust in medical professionals. And that is an overarching problem that I hope my fear with mandating even in the States is that that gets ignored and doesn't get addressed. And I think that's a larger problem that has to be at the root as well of any solution going forward. Yeah. And I think about you on Diddy May. I mean, you work for a municipality. You all had an outbreak. And now your job is to go out and convince people to prevent this disease. How do you build that trust so that people believe that you aren't trying to inject them with something and overcome those fears? It's just educating them um, and providing them with um, the answers to their questions. They, you know, always have a lot of questions and providing them the answers to those questions, providing them with a consistent message. Yeah. And what's that message specifically with Hep A? So the message is that it's vaccine preventable and the best protection for yourself is to get yourself vaccinated. The vaccine is very safe and very effective. And so you just telling them that people believe that not everyone uh, believes it, but we, you know, keep Mm -hmm. repeating that message over and over. And uh, a lot of people, you know, do believe it. People get really nervous, especially with their babies. And that's why, you know, we're talking about this issue. We know that, um, you know, people get just they get very nervous about this thing. And where does this history of distrust come from? Well, I think it's hard to watch. I mean, if, if you, you know, my son, when he was, you know, a day yeah. old, got a hepatitis B vaccine. I mean, I, I would consider myself an expert in, in virology and immunology. I understood exactly what was in that vaccine. It's still hard to watch. And then when he's two months of age, he gets five shots. And and. And it just feels wrong, even though it isn't wrong, even though he's exposed to far more uh, challenges to his immune system just by living on the face of this earth and being colonized with billions and trillions of bacteria. It still looks bad because you see the injection. It must be painful to see your kid screaming and they're screaming at the top of their lungs and their little fingers or little mm-hmm. toe, you know what I mean? And you want to, oh, yeah. you want to opt out it, it, from causing that child pain. One of the benefits of being a loving, responsive parent is that actually, as we've seen using inoculations as a test, is that your kid may be screaming, but when you hold them and you're comforting them, they're actually not having a physiological stress reaction to that shot. So they're vocalizing, but they're not highly stressed by it. Yeah. And that's a really positive thing for families to hear, too, is that they can actually buffer the stress by holding them, being responsive, breastfeeding them, and so on. And that can be a really beneficial thing to know. Now, I, I will mention that this week, social media companies like Facebook announced that they are stepping up, acknowledging their part in all of this misinformation, and are saying that they're going to institute new systems. Your response to that, will this change anything? Well, for not only just 
Facebook, uh, Pinterest, yeah. Amazon Prime, YouTube. Uh, YouTube have all sort of stepped up. I think it's about time. I actually wrote an op-ed piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer that appeared a couple of days ago that said exactly that. I, I, I'm glad they're taking responsibility for, for something that they should be responsible for, which is influencing people in a manner that, that puts their children in harm's way. Because I do think that people have forgotten. Do you think part of the, the, the education is reminding people? In a better world, you would like to think that we could educate people to the extent that they that we don't have to live through this again. Not I just, live through, but reminding. Well, I yeah. just don't think, unfortunately, what's happened is, I mean, why is all this happening now? Why are there committee hearings? Why is, is Pinterest and YouTube and, and Amazon, et cetera, doing, doing what they're doing? Because there are outbreaks. That's why. Because there's outbreaks now in many states. I mean, this started in 2014, 2015 in California. Remember, so the Disneyland measles outbreak then spread to 25 other states. It involved a couple hundred people. Yeah. We eliminated measles from this country in the year 2000. Last year, we had almost four. 400 cases. This year we're up to, you know, it's, it's over 150 cases. We're not doing well. And I think with, with that's why we're do, doing so. In other words, invariably, children have to suffer for us to, to, to finally learn about this. And it's, it's too bad that it has to come to that. And right now we have, you know, a few hundred cases a year. Get it to a few thousand cases a year and you'll see children dying again from measles. And I just, you hope to God that we can prevent all this. With your question about adding it to education, I think absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that has always surprised me is how easy it is to opt out. And although I do believe, you know, looking at other countries, that yes, it should not be mandated, I do believe that if you try to opt out, it should be an intensive process that includes education that reminds people what they are opting out of. Um, you need to hear these stories of people that lived through this. You need to see the pictures of what these diseases look like and what happens and what the mortality rate is relative to the risk rate of taking a vaccine. So often we don't necessarily include that, especially in peer-to-peer interaction. People who don't get vaccinated, uh, what's the health risk? Is it a danger to the rest of the kids? I mean, in this country, measles is around. Uh, mumps, is, we had 6,000 cases of mumps last year. P- pertussis or whooping cough is still common. Pneumococcus is common. I mean, I work in Children's Hospital Philadelphia. We saw a child you know, months ago come in who had a pneumococcal meningitis that was preventable. Had the parent chosen to vaccinate this child, the child wouldn't have had to suffer that, but the child did suffer it. And, you know, when you get meningitis, there's often sequelae, which is probably gonna, what's going to happen to this child. And it's just... You know, medicine is is limited. There's so much we don't know. There's so much we can't do. This we know. Yeah. Specific germs cause specific disease. We can prevent some of them. And when people make a conscious choice not to do that, and then we, we and we there's not a year that goes by at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we don't see children suffer this decision. It just breaks your heart. What's the solution here? Because obviously everybody agrees that, you know, forcing people to do something, you know, Taking their kids and doing things to them that they don't want done isn't necessarily the solution. So how do we balance this uh, and make sure that we keep the population safe? We don't reopen this Pandora's box of this 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 symphony of of infectious disease um, at the same time while respecting parents. Either one and Tracy alludes to this. One is education that is linked to trying to understand what it is basically that makes people afraid so that you have these one-on-one interactions so you can really get to the heart of why they have this fear. But I guess I've just become cynical over the last 20 years we've had our vaccine education center. I think that – you can educate and educate till you're blue in the face, but nothing educates like the virus. Nothing educates like these outbreaks. And that's really what seems to compel people because fear generally compels people more than reason. And that's where we're at now. People have forgotten. And so because this is flashlight, we do have to wrap this up. So what's the future of vaccines? How do we ensure that misinformation and conspiracy theories do not result in reversing some of the progress the world has made in battling 
infectious disease. And we'll start with you, Diddy May, and we'll end and we'll end with you, doctor. You know, it's a great start that social media is, you know, taking down some of the misinformation and just making sure we educate the public what are credible sources for them to look for to get information. All right, Tracy. What the Senate like the hearings now and the plans going forward with that are an absolutely essential ingredient to that. I think peer-to-peer groups are necessary to have popping up around, have families and other families discussing vaccination one-on-one. And as I said, I think making it harder to opt out and making easier access are some of the biggest things. Sometimes, you know, if you have to actively go in and get a shot, it's a lot easier to opt out of that than it is if it's just there, someone comes to your house and you have to send them away. Make the idea that it's normal and not something you actively go and do. That may also help. And final word? We have to find a way to tell this story. As diseases go down, people aren't scared of them. So that, that immunization rates erode makes sense. But I think we have to find a compelling, passionate, compassionate uh, way of telling this story. I mean, you didn't have to convince my parents or me. I was in a polio ward when I, for a couple of months when I was five years old. I mean, I remember what these diseases look like. But my children, who are 26 and 24, not only don't see these diseases today, they didn't grow up with these diseases. And so I think we need to re-explain ourselves and re-explain ourselves well. Thank you to Dr. Paul. Offit. Thank you to Diddy May Jankowskis. And finally, thank you to Dr. Tracy Castles for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Next up, Cash Trap Cheney University could finally get out of financial hot water. We're projecting that we will end the budget balance at June 30th. 182-year-old institution's leader lays out the plans to get it done. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. Is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets thousands of residents in our area hot under the collar is the idea of Cheney University closing its doors. Now, Cheney is the nation's oldest historically black college, and it has been cash-strapped for years and suffers from declining enrollment, but alumni and advocates have fought to keep it open. And this week, the university's president made an announcement that a major win is on the horizon and it could come as soon as June 30th. President Aaron Walton, welcome to Flashpoint. Why, thank you for inviting me. Just when folks think Cheney University is down for the count, you say the fight is not over and you've announced a plan to win. Explain what it is. We've actually been working on a plan since I arrived here in June of 2017. I was a member of the Board of Governors In 2017, we appointed a task force to come up with a new business model for Cheney University. And among the items on that task force report that was accepted and passed on to the school for implementation was looking at a cost structure to balance expenditures with revenues because they'd run over budget for the last five or six years, exploring innovative ways to monetize campus assets. And our largest assets are land and buildings. Cheney sits on 275 acres. And the third, the development of a new student enrollment and recruiting approach. Because for a long time, Cheney has been an open enrollment school and not actually gone out and done 
purposeful student recruiting. So those are just three of the eight objectives that we are dealing with from the task force report. And we focused on, on those three because they have implications far beyond just what we say. Just a few weeks ago, the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Ed had told everybody that Cheney was going to lose its accreditation, that it was $10 million in the hole. And you've made an announcement to say that by June 30th, that Cheney would have a balanced budget. That's right. In 2017, we had an arrangement with PASHI to do a forgiveness of Mm -hmm. the money that we owed them if we were to perform adequately. So what we had to do is the school had run a budget deficit of $7.4 million in fiscal 2017. But for fiscal year 2018, we trimmed that deficit to 4.7 million, and we're projecting that we will end the budget balance at, uh, at June 30th. That's taking into consideration the, we had already planned to do some fundraising this year anyway to make sure that we balanced our budget. And I think that's one thing that had been absent from a lot of the discussion is that part of our process for balancing the budget was to do fundraising. All schools today do fundraising. Yeah, yeah. We're no exception. You don't live on fundraising, but it's a tremendous supplement to student financial aid and state appropriations. Yeah, and so I, we counted on that. You've also announced other ways for Cheney to use its many, many acres of land to bring in, in even more revenue. Absolutely. And as far as that task force report, we were to explore innovative ways to monetize the campus assets. And we were fortunate this year in that we were able to forge some public-private partnerships with some organizations that have really enhanced our ability to recruit students and give us a revenue stream moving forward. And what's the, uh, what is the that Thomas partnership? Jefferson yeah. mm-hmm. uh, University uh, and Hospital System is our health-related partner. Our students are doing internships, even right now, at Thomas Jefferson, looking at um, health disparities and what can be done to, to deal with the health disparities in the Philadelphia region, along with some other projects that um, would lead to uh, a greater interest in the nursing in the medical professions. So that, that relationship takes into account the allied health professions. The one with Epcot Crenshaw is one that takes into effect the research component. It would be a research labs, greenhouses, an aquaponics facility, those types of things in which minorities are traditionally underrepresented in. So they would handle the technical part, and they're going to not only rehab one of the buildings for a lab and have our students intern, but they're going to build their corporate headquarters here at Cheney. Wow. And then the third partnership was with Starbucks. When they had the issues here in Philadelphia, they came to us and said, is there something we can begin to do together? And we have agreed to work with them on activities that would increase minority employment in the Philadelphia region. So when you have partners of note like that, It's a shot in the arm to a lot of the things that you're doing. And because of those partnerships, I think it's enhanced the interest of a lot of students to come to Cheney that heretofore would not have given us consideration. And that's probably an area that we are as excited about as we have been in years. Yeah, because I did check the numbers and it seemed like uh, Cheney's enrollment had gone down to less than 500. It had been up over 700 the year before And so are you hoping that all of this sort of changes that trajectory? We projected 
probably 15 months ago that we were going to shrink before we grew. And we knew a lot of the things that we had to do would have an impact on our student population. One of the things that we did early on was decide to get out of NCAA Division II and, and the PSAC conferences for our football program. So we lost 80 students because we eliminated football, but it was a tremendous financial drain on the university. So that was a conscious decision. We also looked at the open enrollment process that had been used at the university for a number of years where we brought in a lot of students that didn't even meet Cheney standards. They were students that needed a tremendous level of remediation, and they may have spent a year or two getting remediated and using financial aid, et cetera, and not at the point where they could take a lot of the higher concentration academic subjects. Those individuals who transferred, and I think we had something like 115 of those, a lot of them went to community college. Uh, a lot of them weren't really at the point where they could deal with the academic rigors of a four-year institution. So that's what I meant by shrink to grow. We had to get ourselves to a level where we were trying to recruit students that were more academically prepared for some of the opportunities that are being presented by these partnerships. And so how are you all dealing with the backlash? Because, you know, here in Philly, we heard about students dealing with dorms with no water and all this kind of stuff and students being very upset about that. Do you think that'll mean that Cheney's numbers go down lower? Yeah. That's true. I think that we've kind of, addressed that over the last couple of weeks. We had a main hot water heater and a backup go out in one of our larger dormitories. It's like having a house. Yeah. If you own a house, your hot water heater will go out. Mm. And if it happens to go out on a Friday and your stores and your folks that, that uh, prepare things aren't available till Monday, guess what? You're without hot water for three days. Consider a larger type of a structure where the hot water system is made specifically for that institution. We actually had to get one from the factory and have it shipped into Cheney. took us a couple days to get it shipped in here from New York, and our folks worked feverishly to dismantle the one that was here, and it's run by electrical circuitry, redo the circuitry, and then it arrived here at 2 in the morning on Sunday night, and by 6 o'clock in the morning, it was all systems go. This had begun on Friday. Yeah. So naturally, the students were concerned that they didn't have hot water, but we did make other facilities available for the students to take showers. Was it an inconvenience? Yes. Was it something that could happen with any institution? And it had nothing to do with money. It had to do with equipment. Got it. And that same weekend, we had, because of the uh, inclement weather we had before um, and the pipes, you know, things being frozen, a lot of our sprinkler systems thought out, expanded, and we had two buildings that had water damage as a result of the weather. These are acts of nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't control those things. So a lot of people get uh, bent out of shape. The only thing you can do is not react to them, but respond to them. Yeah. So we responded. We've got uh, the dorms are, are fine. The students are happy about that. And uh, we're in the, in the midst of repairing some of the buildings that were damaged by the water leakage. Now, I will say, as someone who's been covering Cheney uh, for years and have gone to the community meetings, the alumni meetings, one thing I could say about Cheney alum, they are some of the most persistent. They refuse to give up. They want to make sure that Cheney University never closes. Do you feel confident in, in this plan? If I didn't, I wouldn't be here. You have to remember, 
I came out of a corporate environment, 40 years in business and industry, and part of my role was doing turnaround companies. I turned around probably three to five companies into profitability. When I was sent to those companies, I was sent with the proviso to make them work or shut them down. When I came to Cheney, I said, I came to Cheney to make it work. Anybody can shut something down, but you need a specific type of expertise and experience to keep something going. And we're using all of our efforts and all of our contacts, et cetera, to put training on the right trajectory to be another 180, here 182 years more because they just celebrated Founders Day last week. We're trying to prepare Cheney to meet the demands of the future. So it will be here 182 years from now. I'm a Howard Law School grad, so, you know, and I've been to, you know, the Cheney campus, and I know how much people love their HBCUs, but I have to say there's a special love for Cheney University. Why do you think people love it so much? Well, I think in addition to being the first HBCU in, in the United States, it's a nurturing environment. Because it is not a gigantic mega school, you are a name and not just a number. And I think that the support systems are here for people to feel very comfortable. It's a experimental and learning place for them to find out who they are in a non-threatening environment. Yeah. So I think a lot of the students have come to Cheney uh, may not have had opportunities at other places, and Cheney gave them an opportunity, and we don't want to walk away from being a school of opportunity. Yes, we are raising the academic standards because today's world requires more of students. But we are also continuing to, to recognize the fact that all of our students don't come prepared, and we have bridge programs that we're putting into the summer, and we're going to have some interaction with some community colleges in terms of a dual enrollment to make sure that uh, students that need remediation start at the community college level and morph into Cheney. Yeah. And so what can people do to help you? Well, right now, they can one, they can pray for Cheney because I believe in prayer. The second thing they can do is they can make contributions to the Cheney Foundation. Everyone talks about, you know, we want to save Cheney. Well, if we're on a fundraising drive, then the way to save Cheney is to participate. And it doesn't make any difference what level. It means that we all are in this together. And so how much do you need to raise, sir? Our campaign is targeted for at least $4 million. That's by June 30th. So you, That's the end of our fiscal year. So Cheney needs to raise $4 million by June 30th. That's correct. So put your money where your mouth is. Where can people go to donate? ChaneyFoundation.org. ChaneyFoundation.org. President Walton, I wish you luck. I just want to say I hope that Cheney keeps going. Well, just, just one last, I think, indicator is our applications for admission are up 30%. Okay? So Cheney, it's and Cheney our numbers lives on. offered are up several hundred percent. And we already have a number of students that have deposited toward 2019's class. So we're moving in a direction that, that we've planned. And so put your money where your mouth is, donate, help Cheney raise $4 million by June 30th. Go to ChaneyFoundation.org. All right. Well, thank you so much, President Aaron Walton, for stepping in and helping and thank you this for beloved university. Us to be part of your show. Next up, a new exhibit for kids that explores Islamic culture. 360 view of mosques from around yeah. the globe. Where you can see it and how Philly's own Muslim community is a reflection therein. We'll be right back. 
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Today's headlines are full of divisiveness, but one local museum is taking diversity and acceptance to a whole new level. A new exhibit celebrates modern and historic Muslim culture and transports visitors to the Middle East, where they can experience everything from America to Zanzibar. Here to tell us more is Please Touch Museum's president and CEO, Trish Wellenbach. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for inviting us today. So how's the exhibit going? It is amazing. I will say we've been working on this for about two years and we had a lot of expectations and we have exceeded every expectation we had for the exhibition, the response from the community, the level of interest. It has been astounding, really. I have to say that. So for folks who did not know, please tell us about what is the exhibit and, and what are you showcasing? Yeah, America de Zanzibar was developed at the Children's Museum of Manhattan. Uh, not to travel around the country, but just to be a reflection of the Muslim community and cultures of the city of New York and around the globe. And about two years ago, a little more than two years ago, I was up there visiting and had a chance to walk through the exhibition and said if it was ever going to be traveling, we'd love to talk to the museum about bringing it to Philadelphia. And that started a two-year journey. Yeah, and Philadelphia is home, for folks who don't know, to more than 200,000 Muslims. And so you all partnered with people from the community and, and got input and, and created this beautiful exhibit. Yeah, part of our learning was the fact that about a third of the Philadelphia community mm-hmm. identifies as Muslim American and about 85% of that community identifies as African American. We also have 50 mosques within the city wow. of Philadelphia. Didn't know and, that. Yeah. yeah. So as we were learning more, we called our colleagues in New York and said, what would you think if we made it a little bit Philadelphia focused? Mm-hmm. And um, they were delighted. And we did engage a wonderful group of about two dozen community, religious, civic, uh, cultural leaders in the Muslim community to really come and partner with us and teach us what we didn't know from the very beginning. The day we got the first core grant approval, we said, okay, now's the time to get started. And that too has been a tremendous gift to our museum. Uh, Salima Suswell has led that group and she's just a treasure and has taught us so much and been patient with us as we've asked good questions and learned some things. Yeah, because a lot of people have never been into inside of a mosque. A lot of people have not been inside of the home of people um, who are Muslim and know very little about Islamic culture. So explain what a family, kids, what would they see if they go to this exhibit? Oh, there's wonderful interactive uh, experiences, starting out with the marketplace that Mm. um, reflects uh, ancient trading and moves that all the way to present day. There's a beautiful courtyard which has a wishing well in it where children and visitors can put their wishes, their hopes, their dreams. We have a Tao, which is an ancient but still used today approach to creating wooden ships um, that sail out of India. Uh, It reflects every country in the uh, Middle Eastern world Mm. and every country where there were Muslim um, individuals and families living there. We have a wonderful Pakistani um, family truck that 
usually lives in, in Pakistani families for generations and families decorate them and the kids get a chance to decorate our truck. And then there is this immersive 3D, 360 view of mosques from around yeah. the globe, which mm-hmm. is just magical. You spin the globe, you pick a country, a city, and it opens up to show you a mosque from that country or that city. And we're very honored that uh, the Children's Museum of Manhattan allowed us to photograph a local mosque, which is now going to be part of this journey for this exhibition. So when it leaves Philadelphia in September, there'll be a permanent part of Philadelphia in the exhibition, which is great. We have objects from the American home. So members of our community advisory group donated um, prayer rugs and clothing and toys and jewelry. We have two other wonderful components. One is an artist-in-residence opportunity that we had, and we commissioned art Mm. to be done by adults that was informed by conversations and art-making with children. And we do have a prayer room, uh, which was unique to our experience here. And that allows Muslim families, when they come to visit the museum, if it is the time of day for them to reflect and pray, they will have that quiet, respectful place. But it also allows children and families who are not from Muslim communities or might not know Muslim families to really understand what it means to have reflective prayer. Yeah. And so what's the ultimate goal here for bringing such a unique exhibit to Philadelphia? You know, mystery sometimes... Uh, engages people in discovery or it pushes them away through fear. And we wanted to create something that was maybe mysterious to people in a joyful place, in a place where you could learn and explore and discover and hopefully maybe uh, help young children know that it's okay to ask questions, that difference is all right. Difference is not something to be walked away from, but something to embrace. Yeah. And you mentioned off mic that adults want to come to this. Adults want to come all the time. I get questions like, I don't have children in my life. Can I come without a child? And I say, absolutely, you can come and experience it. And I think that that has been one of the things that we've learned. Like, we created this opportunity for people to say, I think I want to understand more. I think I want to experience it. And I think it's worth, you know, an hour of your time, two hours of your time. Yeah. And so I know that um, the exhibit is open until September. We have a six-month run, so that way we can get lots of people in, Mm -hmm. and we'll be here through the entire um, tourism season of the summer. So that was very important for us. And there are other things going on as well. Oh, yes. There are many, many things. We opened a commissioned play, Bashira and the Amazing Bean Pie. It's a wonderful story written by a, a young woman who lives in Philadelphia, and we worked with her to adapt it into a play. And we're doing creative art experiences We're doing storytelling. We have wonderful foods in our cafe that our partners that run our cafe created that are reflective of Muslim community and family. So it's a pretty immersive experience. Yeah. And I have not seen anything like that done, you know, especially on a for for kids. Um, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for them. And so my final question for you is, how do you feel like knowing so many people have kind of flocked to the museum because of this? It is really gratifying. As a a leader of this museum, I am deeply proud that I have had the uh, opportunity to work with our team, our board, and to do this really transformative work for our museum. Possibly if I do nothing more for our museum in this city, I will have done enough in this. Wonderful. So check out uh, the Please Touch Museum. Their website is pleasetouchmuseum.org. And check out America to Zanzibar, Muslim Cultures Near and Far. It runs through September 2nd. Thank you so much to Trish Wellenbach for coming into Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. That's 
it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Just search Flashpoint KYW. And if there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Football Hall of Famer Don McPherson once said, True prevention is not waiting for bad things to happen. It's preventing things from happening in the first place. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.